Today on Changemakers, I'm going to do something a little different. In August, the Australian publication Griffith Review released an edition on Utopia. The purpose was to examine the possibilities and pitfalls of imagining a better future. I wrote one of the chapters. It's a memoir. Even though, frankly, I don't feel old enough to write a memoir. The piece is a snapshot that explores my life as a changemaker and some of the stories that sit behind my drive for a better world. It's called Scaling Change, Negotiating the Challenges of Big and Small. This episode, I'm going to read this piece to you. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. I'm old enough to remember when Australia's Wonderland opened in 1985 in Sydney's western suburbs. I was eight. Arriving was like leaping into an assortment of highly curated alternative worlds. Wonderland was a better place. The park unabashedly said so in their advertising. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the world was Wonderland? I embraced it all as I stood at the medieval fair and marvelled at the pirate ship. My sister and I must have gone on the terrifying bush beast, an overbearing rickety wooden roller coaster, more than a dozen times. It was a perfect place and a perfect day. That is, until we lost our parents and they feared we'd been abducted. They found us on the spinning chairs, blithely unaware of their panic. We promptly left. Even so... I've retained a love of amusement parks. Growing up, my family had one overseas holiday and our trip to Paris featured Euro Disney on the second day. Day two. Get in line, Mona Lisa. My career has focused on the pursuit of better places. I am a change maker. For more than 20 years, I've worked to try and make things better. I've helped build massive social movements alongside quieter connections with groups marginalised by mainstream politics. Over the years, gratified by some success, but more starkly bruised by brutal losses, I've reflected on how we might change the way we make change. Co-founding GetUp, Australia's one million member digital social justice organisation, I use digital tools. I've also tried to forge connections across differences by introducing community organising to Australia. I've researched changemaking at the University of Sydney and hosted a podcast that features social changemakers from around the world. This unconventional career began far more conventionally. Initially, I imagined myself as a lawyer, a modern female rumpole of the Bailey, I was partly spurred by my dad's belief that I was good at arguing. But I had a passion for justice that ran deeper than an interest in the law. My grandma would often describe her experiences of poverty in North England and how she struggled to get her family, including my dad, to Australia. My immediate family were alert observers of the political world, but not actively involved in it. 
Support for the netball club and an occasional PNC meeting was all there was time for alongside their own form of change making, an all consuming regime of home renovation, striving for a better world on our quarter acre block. I grew up in the 1980s and that framed how I saw the world. I was five when Bob Hawke became Prime Minister. We were on holidays with my extended family and we hunched around the television that night. The adults stiffly upright on dark brown corduroy couches and the kids slouched on the floor. It was tense. My grandfather was a Liberal supporter. My parents voted for Hawke. While I'll admit my take on issues like the Prices and Incomes Accord and Franklin Dam were still in formation, that night I picked a side. When the election was declared, I jumped in the air and ran to my dad for a cuddle. I became a keen observer of politics. On Friday mornings, I caught a 6.20am train with my dad to attend school band practice, and on the trip, he would share his broadsheet newspaper with me. We discussed Marbo, the movement against nuclear testing in the Pacific, feminism, Tiananmen Square, and I longed to be able to do something about the problems in the world. By the time I arrived at university, I had a well-developed passion for making change. Yet I was quite clueless about how things actually worked. At the University of Technology, Sydney, I rode the escalators of the brutalist UTS Tower with a friend. As we passed a sign that said UTS Union, I said in a hushed tone that we should be cautious before signing up. We needed to know its politics, its ideology first. I had read extensively about some unions not being as good as others. I wanted to be on the right side of any ideological on-campus fight. Weeks later, with red cheeks, I discovered the truth about the UTS union question. Far from any complex battle between left and right, socialism and pragmatism, this was the primary service provider for students, a single compulsory body focused on mundane dramas like coffee carts. The pinnacle of student political life was the National Union of Students Conference. To prepare, all the factions, and there were many, would draft motions to be debated on the conference floor. The National Union of Students, or NUS, was nothing but comprehensive. Its policy documents had strong opinions about most global conflicts, as well as student welfare, discrimination and the cost of education. While each faction would proudly claim radically different politics on all the issues, thereby justifying why people should choose one faction over another, the truth was that they were all remarkably similar. Working with a group of friends ahead of the 1998 conference, I found myself writing motions that were intentionally designed to spark a stoush between my faction, the Labor left, and the Labor right. The drafting process became increasingly esoteric. I had to make sure that a detailed motion about student fees ended with a call for free education and made no reference to that sellout hex deferred fee scheme the Labor right supported. Weeks later, on conference floor, I gleefully moved my motion, gathering the numbers, making a witty speech, winning the vote. Applause erupted from the floor, even while the Liberal Party, then in government, continued to increase hex fees, seemingly unmoved by my skilful rhetoric. This was powerful politics, right? The conference was a stage for a battle of utopias. 
I had done the numbers and my clever little motion crafted Thomas More style as an essentially fictional picture of a perfect higher education system had carried the day. Yet something fundamental gnawed at me. There was something so hopeless about an intense conflict over a political act that made literally no difference. What was all this energy for? Perhaps the conflict served the purpose of cementing our tribes. But that too left me wanting. In the intense ideological space known as student politics, solidarity based on ideology is a solidarity based on sameness. Your group, your tribe, your people wear ideological tropes as uniforms as they march in lockstep against a common enemy. You could hear the class war metaphors when students like me yelled at the top of our voices, the students, united, will never be defeated. The chant was less about winning and more about being students who share the same experiences and beliefs. Baked into this approach is the idea that you must link arms as the same downtrodden Davids fighting the hostile ideology spewing from the Goliath of government. Your common experiences and beliefs hold you together. Solidarity as sameness does not only fuel the student movement. Ideological clubs make the world turn. In modern life, unity frequently relies on a shared ideological utopia. But is sameness the basis of solidarity? Is sameness even possible? Involved in these heated battles, building a sense of solidarity with those whom I shared so much, I also knew I was not the same as most other people in my faction, my university, my world. Two years earlier, I'd been hospitalised with psychosis. I was now taking lithium to treat bipolar disorder. The psychosis itself had come on at an earlier NUS conference in 1996. So my mental health wasn't even a secret. That it wasn't a secret was clear in how I was received by other students after it happened. In January 1998, a year after my breakdown, I sat in a damp office space that housed the NUS New South Wales branch. 50 student activists and a large photocopier machine were wedged cheek to cheek for the first education collective of the year. When you have had a psychosis, most people don't talk to you or with you. They look around you. You can see it coming. They clock you. You see recognition on their face for a slow motion second. And then they look away. Recovery and return is not like recovery from cancer or divorce. Confronted by their own uncertainty, overcome with awkwardness or horror, people step away. That's what happened that day. Eventually, I had to break this silence. I asked someone, do you remember me? They said yes and walked away. By the end of that year, I was running for president of the National Union of Students in New South Wales. I wanted to prove I was normal. But not everyone was on board. A leader from another faction went out of their way to spread the word that I was unstable. Despite their best efforts, I was elected NUS president. But I learned a lesson about sameness. I stopped talking about my brain, 
my difference, to be normal, to be accepted as a leader, I needed to be like everyone else. The idea that solidarity could be forged through difference came to me slowly. During several years working in the union movement, I helped coordinate involvement in justice issues, such as trying to stop the war in Iraq and the abuse of refugees. These confrontations created mass mobilisations and energy. Sydney's protests against the war in Iraq in early 2003 mobilised over 250,000 people in the streets, the single largest rally in Australia's history as part of a global weekend of peace marches that saw over 10 million people march. It was the largest set of coordinated demonstrations ever held in human history. And still the war went ahead, gathering all those like minds together wasn't enough. In my quest for a different way to do politics, I undertook a PhD in the US for a couple of years, where the people who held my greatest interest were community organisers. At my first training with the Industrial Areas Foundation in New Jersey, the US group that spread the concepts and practice of community organising around the world, I was unsettled. I was irritated at their critique of ideology they kept calling it wishful thinking. They lifted up ways of being that I disagreed with. Compromise, negotiation, self-interest, pragmatism. Debriefing the training with my husband, I was unsure if I would even go back. But I did. And over the following year, my mind started changing. One organiser, Joe Crastel, who eventually became my mentor, asked me to write a political autobiography reflecting on the stories that had shaped me. I still have my notes from early 2007, and they include a brief entry about my bipolar diagnosis. It was now eight years since I'd been kicked around for my mental illness, for being different. In this new community organising space, it felt possible to re-examine who I was. Returning to Australia, I began setting up the Sydney Alliance, Ultimately, a broad-based collaboration of many religious and community groups and unions. The Sydney Alliance put into practice a distinctively relational way of being in public life, seeking to build relationships between organisations from across the city. It was intentionally diverse. Its 49 groups at launch included the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union, the Muslim Women's Australia, the Catholic Church, the Cancer Council of New South Wales, the Jewish Board of Deputies and the New South Wales Nurses Association. These groups didn't usually work together. Some of them didn't even like each other. But they began to get to know each other based on the principle that relationship precedes action and they had a shared stake in the city in which we all live. Community organising is the opposite of a grand mobilisation. It is local and granular. The power of organising comes from its focus on one-to-one -one conversation. Politics is built interpersonally. It is there that you can see each other, your differences and your potential solidarity, face-to-face. -face. As an organiser, I might have had more than 5,000 one-to-one meetings with community leaders, partners and volunteers. Thanks to that Industrial Areas Foundation training, I've learned a particular way of asking listening, sharing and exploring who we are. If I think about which meeting was the most important, 
the same one always comes to mind. I'd met Maha Abdo, the former executive director of Muslim Women's Australia, when I was 17. Back then, I'd completed a high school project about different religions, travelling from my home on Sydney's homogenous North Shore to Lakemba, the city's multicultural epicentre. I had run my finger down a column of the white pages to find MWA. They had women in the title, so I cold called them for a meeting. I was curious about belief systems, particularly those different to my own. But Maha was not just an interview subject. She spent time with me, taking me on a tour of the mosque, introducing me to people. In 1993, I could see that she was a centre point in this community. So when the Sydney Alliance started to gather form in 2009, a time when Islamophobia was rife, I knew I needed to reconnect with her. The meeting began normally enough, and then Maha spoke about what it was like to be a Muslim woman after September 11, when women's hijabs were ripped from their heads. I hadn't talked about my bipolar in a meeting before. Instead, I'd use safe language, code words, to talk about its effect on me. The autobiography I wrote for Joe Crastel had helped me to describe how I got sick when I was 19, how it had been unclear if I would recover, how it had been a turning point in my life. Sitting with Maha, I told the deeper story. I told her about the abuse, the bullying and discrimination I'd experienced as I recovered. I told her that what felt so cruel was that recovering from a psychosis was the most extraordinary thing I have ever done. And yet, I'd been attacked for it. It was an utterly different experience to the one Maha described, but I could see how our experiences resonated. We'd both been attacked for things we treasured in ourselves. In that conversation, I had been seen. Maha didn't look past me or strain in discomfort. She didn't sidestep my anxiety, my rawness. In sharing pain, we found joy. Even more than words, it was a moment alight with love. I still cry when I think of that day. It's risky sharing how we are different. It's so much easier to pretend that ideological sameness, a shared sense of imagined hopes, can hold us together. But confected imaginaries can be as damaging as any full-blown mania. A dreamy set of hopes distorts what we see in front of us every day. Each one of us is a rich mosaic of difference. Some of us are more distinct than others. Sitting with some difference takes extraordinary poise. Clear-sighted listening is hard. But these fractals of identity and experience shape who we are. The personal shapes how we walk in the world. It is political. These moments of shared slowness were utterly countercultural to the world of social change that orbited around me. Not long before I founded the Sydney Alliance, I had co-founded GetUp, the digital campaign monolith that burst into Australian politics in mid-2005. GetUp began in the reflected turmoil of the 2004 federal election. John Howard had won an extraordinary victory against ALP leader Mark Latham, capturing both the House of Representatives and the Senate. 
In December that year, I met a university friend, Jeremy Hymans, who had been in the United States supporting the failed John Kerry election campaign. There, he discovered digital campaigning and the work of moveon.org. He wanted to bring that idea to Australia. Could I help? Within three days, we were securing seed funding from Unions New South Wales, where I was working at the time, for Australia's Move On. From the outset, GetUp moved with lightning speed. Its culture rewarded type A personalities. Fast brains, fast ideas, fast change. Digital tools let us compress place and time. Reactions to policy outrage could be volcanic and people's passions could travel with the news cycle, sign on to a climate campaign and stay to defend the ABC. As Sydney Alliance and GetUp took shape, my life took on a bipolar tempo, one part hare and one part tortoise. But I love both. Change-making needs the kind of reach that GetUp can deliver because the tender relational connections I was building at the Sydney Alliance could struggle to scale up. But emails don't change the world. People do. Could a world exist where the million people on GetUp's email list, not just its staff, lead the campaign for change? This dual experience as an organiser made me question the place that Thomas More had created. Must utopia be a nowhere, an aspiration for which we yearn but never attain? Through community organising, I'd found a different good place. Not over there, but right here. My hour-long conversation with Maha had a utopian quality to it. Instead of seeing utopia as something above us and beyond us, I started to see it as an experience that was possible in the everyday. I started to wonder if I was glimpsing utopia in the very practice of trying to build it. My love of community organising had never erased those grander desires. Even as an organiser, my hopes for the big sometimes awkwardly disrupted the slow, small toil of relationship building. Months before the Lint Cafe siege in Sydney, in December 2014, where a lone gunman killed two hostages while brandishing an Islamic flag, the Sydney Alliance had been trying to address an increasing number of attacks on Muslims. The then federal government consistently conflated Islam with terrorism. And despite MWA's membership of the Sydney Alliance, we hadn't done enough to explicitly combat this growing Islamophobia. This changed in mid-2014 with the creation of a new symbol. The olive ribbon was designed to spark conversation across the hundreds of thousands of members in our partner organisations. When it was launched, our partners, from parishes to unions, committed to explaining to their members why they were embracing the project as a way of spurring conversations across the city. When the siege happened, those with whom I had my closest relationships, Maha and the Muslim Women's Australia, were again at risk of experiencing what they'd gone through after September 11. We urgently needed to influence public debate and help people interpret this violence as a criminal act and not the work of Islam. I flew into action. We arranged for all of our organisations to come out publicly in support of the Muslim community supported MWA to take delegations to Parliament and organised olive ribbon flags for display across the city. We led debate in the press and on social media. We received some death threats for these efforts. 
But this was not what organisers were meant to do. Organising was slow and collaborative and I was pushing harder and faster than many liked. I had arguments with colleagues and leaders. It didn't help that this whole experience happened alongside a new change in my brain. I'd been depressed for months, but in this moment, I was galvanised to act. And I wasn't sleeping. My singular focus was ensuring that solidarity carried in the public consciousness. That message did carry, although I don't think it had a lot to do with what I did. The Premier, Mike Baird, said the right things after listening to Muslim leaders, including Maha. And after the tragedy, the people of the city brought flowers to Martin Place, coming together to experience sorrow, not vengefulness. But I had damaged my standing as an organiser. It would be easy to blame it on a momentary brain dislocation, but my hypermania wasn't just personal. The mobilisation of people for a citywide drama was powerful, while it also had the potential to break up some of the tender, ordinary utopias that had been built between the leaders of the Sydney Alliance. Slow and fast, small and big. These are the scales that are hard to hold together. It is well known that community organising struggles to engage speed. This was a key tension in the history of the Industrial Areas Foundation, from whom I'd learnt so much in the US. When Martin Luther King came to Chicago between 1965 and 1966, the Industrial Areas Foundation director, Saul Alinsky, and his legion of community organisers based across the city had to work out what to do. Up until then, Alinsky's organisers had sidestepped the civil rights movement, sceptical of a perceived reliance on charismatic leadership and risky non-violent civil disobedience. Instead, they'd maintained a long focus on the material needs of the black community. King's civil rights mobilising was based on action rather than evaluation. Big mobilisations, less organisation and less focus on developing community leaders. The Industrial Areas Foundation did eventually move in support of King's work in Chicago, but many changemakers beyond the IAF tradition criticised them for coming too late. I don't see it that way. I see two cultures of change that didn't know how to speak to each other. Each saw scale and time differently, with no language to bridge the space between. I lived this contradiction. I had given birth to two children, Get Up and the Sydney Alliance, that were chalk and cheese and I couldn't get them to play together nicely. I knew how to talk with them on their own terms, But when they were together, they remained in a perpetual cycle of parallel play. Their identities were myopic, and the more they needed to define themselves, the less they were able to understand the other. Sometimes seeing difference is difficult. Like a utopian ideology, when a social change strategy is projected as a silver bullet, a zero-sum game, you are either with it or against it. By late 2014, I could see the need for holding together both fast and slow. It was the necessity and foundational slowness of my relationship with Maha that had galvanised my push for a fast citywide solidarity. Without time, without the ability to see and love our differences, that fast politics could never have arrived. Especially that kind of fast. 
The Olive Ribbon campaign was nothing like the protests against the war in Iraq, where we brought together people already on our side. It was a fast politics that built connections between relative strangers, between people with rich differences. This wasn't a matter of choosing between fast and slow, but a realisation that we could hold both together. Not every interpersonal connection has utopian qualities. Indeed, most conversation is the exact opposite. How was your day? Are you okay? How's the weather? Did you catch the game? Conversational filler. In other situations, interpersonal connection is sanitised. See a doctor, a lawyer, a social worker, a journalist, lots of inquiring questions, but these professionals will share nothing of themselves. There's no sharing, no exchange. A grounded utopian connection creates points of intersection between our public roles and ourselves as human beings. Take this piece. I could have listed things from my CV, documenting my public role. Instead, I've talked about experiences from my private world that help shape the decisions I've taken in my public life. Being clear on the stories that shape who we are helps others understand us at a much deeper level. And equally, it helps us understand ourselves. For an unconventional roller coaster life like mine, these stories have helped me anchor how I move forward. While ideological utopias focus on the what, elusive ideas of grandeur, grounded utopia focuses on the how. In a similar sense, the intersection of public and private takes the question of what we do and explores why we do it. Feminists have argued about the importance of this for a long time. The refrain, the personal is political, was born of the idea that inequality and abuse in the private household was excused from public accountability. But this idea is not only a tool for diagnosing injustice. It helps us better understand ourselves. When Joe Crestle asked me to write a political autobiography, this is what he was asking me to do. Community organisers use this connection between the public and the private to help stretch an understanding of how public life works and to spark a recognition that this world can be changed through action. Solidarity, however, is a practice made and shared together. It is in relationships that we experience the power of our intersecting public and private lives, where we can find grounded utopias. In organising, we call this practice relational meetings, where you have a conversation focused on exploring what makes someone tick, trying to understand why they do what they do. That was what I experienced with Maha. These conversations are premised on curiosity and fueled by questions, but they are equally matched by a preparedness to share. The meetings are agitational. I discovered more about myself by being in that conversation. It stirred things up for me, quite literally. In turn, Maha shifted too. I'm not sure what she thought going into that meeting, but walking out, she became one of the Sydney Alliance's most senior leaders, committing immediately to attending community organising training and going on to shape the coalition. The relational meeting is an art form, not a science. Whenever I run a training seminar in relational meetings, people want to know what questions they should ask. 
The challenge is that it isn't so simple. A script gets in the way of listening and sharing. Sincere relationships, curious, agitational, challenging relationships take work and commitment. Striving for a grounded utopia one-to-one is as difficult as fighting for a good place that you can't quite ever reach. Critically, the grounded utopia is about exploring the ways in which we are different. Ed Chambers, who ran the IAF after Saul Alinsky, called the relational meeting the most radical thing that we do because it builds political life out of each of us individually. Rather than an ideology that presumes our sameness, relational meetings sees individuals and the distinctive strengths that make up those collectives. To do this, relational meetings explore someone's interests. People hate the term self-interest, but if you examine the term's Latin origin, its meaning is simply to be among. All of the things that move us most deeply are forged with others. Our interests and our identity are generative, not miraculous. I learnt about justice from my grandma. I explored politics over a newspaper with my father. These interests were forged in relationship with others. Our interests are how we are shaped by and shape our relationships, our family and friends, our organisations, our hobbies and passions, our work, our legacy and our deep foundational stories that inform the turning points of our lives. Understanding interests turns a relational meeting into a space for action. It seeks to disrupt the world as it is with the values of the world as it should be. This pairs the practice of relationships with an understanding of power. Power is another one of those words that many good people don't like. Organisers distinguish between the brutality of power over with the enabling possibility of power with. But for organisers, in contrast to ideologues, the source of the power is in the connection across our differences through an articulation of interests, not an abstracted unity. In 2012, the Sydney Alliance began a conversation with the Glebe Youth Service about local jobs. MERVAC a large construction company, was starting to build 1,200 medium-density dwellings in the area. The Sydney Alliance had been working on social inclusion in young people, and our research had identified that real inclusion came from good jobs. Construction jobs are great jobs, and the construction union was keen to create opportunities for young people from the public housing estate nearby. Eight young men and women agreed to be part of a delegation of 20 or so civil society leaders to meet Mervac and the Glebe Youth Service. We began with everyone sharing a story about why a jobs program like this was in their interests. The local church leaders spoke, then a representative from the Jewish Board of Deputies, several unionists, then the young people. Finally, two representatives from Mervac would also speak. There was tension in the room. What would they say? Would they care? Would they know how to express themselves if they did? Into the quiet, the first representative talked about growing up in the area and caring for it still. The second Mervac representative talked about getting his start as an apprentice. His senior role had come from this unlikely start, the very start that we were imagining that day. 
While the stories in themselves didn't change the power relations in the room, they demonstrated two things. First, we had set the agenda by displaying our powerful network of relationships. While we may create a friendly atmosphere with our introductory rounds, we also made it very clear that every major institution in the area was standing with us. Second, our approach made visible that our so-called opponents cared about this issue too. We had different but connected interests in creating these apprenticeships, and these different shared interests helped us find a pathway to make change. When five young local men and women joined me to meet Mervac's CEO at their office overlooking the rocks, we knew that we would get a deal. This distinctive approach exists not only in the suburbs of Sydney, but in 84 cities around the world. Slow may be painstaking, but it's also resilient. When I learned about organising back in 2006, I was translating decades of experience in successfully improving housing, living wages, educational opportunities and transport across the United States, United Kingdom and parts of Europe. Now, since leaving the Sydney Alliance, I've been researching and writing about these kinds of modest movements that attract little media attention. Their collective leadership structures don't lend themselves to easy column inches and their countercultural focus on relationships often confuse journalists by looking for an easy hook. But quick eyes often miss what's important. It's like physics. Just because you can't see quantum mechanics doesn't mean that relationships at the subatomic scale don't matter. Sometimes the very small can be bigger than you think. There is something counterintuitive when it comes to contrasting ideological and grounded utopias as bigness and smallness. We are used to thinking that change-making should be big. Big visions for handling the difficult place we are in. Don't we need big to deal with climate change, inequality, authoritarianism or race and gender injustice? I'm not arguing that we don't. But I'm saying that bigness without smallness, without the relational, the interpersonal, the recognition of difference, without listening, is toxic. Bigness can be its own problem. At the same time, let's not romanticise smallness. Years of community organising on its own left me frustrated. Take this offhand remark by a friend after we had just won a battle to fix a lift at Arncliffe Station. The action was led by a diverse coalition and it was a great moment when Premier Gladys Berejiklian made the announcement. But not long after, a friend said to me, you've been organising for eight years and all you've won is a lift? Ouch. The thing that stung was that while we were very good at the local battles, weaving local interests together, we were not very good at changing metropolitan Sydney. Our grounded utopia was not scaling up. In the five years that followed, I've talked with hundreds of organisers and movement builders across the world, from Hong Kong to Barcelona, Austin, London and Cape Town. My greatest insight, if you can call it that, is that we need to hold any simple answer about social change lightly. Across these cities, often facing tougher conditions than I know, good change makers change their strategy and their approach constantly. Gandhi famously declared, 
If you want to change the world, start with yourself. His proclamation holds in tension the two utopias that have marked my work. For Gandhi, the tool that helps people achieve world-scale and intimate personal change is self-awareness. Deep reflection isn't easy, particularly when you're sitting in the fast lane. I was not well-tuned to reflection. My ideological utopias were built on external goals rather than my inner world. But my quixotic brain difference was a gift. Crisis led me to seek out different reflective spaces. The very fact of living with bipolar was deeply instructive. My body soars, then crashes, which is exhausting and potentially dangerous. Yet, with a brain like mine, you can't just get off the ride. You have to work out how to keep going. You must learn how to walk forward. Life becomes about how to anticipate the rise and retreat and prepare yourself and others for it. A bipolar life is about handling both big and small. You can't pick a side. It's about negotiation and flow. The certainty of uncertainty. A life of permanent change. For so long I've serenaded the big utopias. Simple answers for how to change the world. Yet my brain differences help me see that something is missing when big utopias presume sameness or present quick fixes. My romance with social change silver bullets eventually saw me step back and see the complementary different ways in which we can be strong together. Accordingly, in trying to change the world, I found the power to embrace myself. These days I try not to jerk between these two good places but I try to hold them both in the same way my body holds my mind. When I organise and I connect one to one with another, my feet stand on the ground. That's how I know I won't fall down. But I've also learnt to trust that I can lift my eyes to see the stars and to know there, even beyond my reach, there might be a vision that can propel us, a constellation made beautiful because of our differences. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is Series 5, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. This episode was first published in Griffith Review, edited by Ashley Hay, edition 73, Hay Utopia, invites us to consider other ways the world can be. It's a provocative collection of new essays, memoir, fiction, poetry and more, including my memoir, Scaling Change, as well as other work such as Bryony Doyle, Leah McKerney, Ellen Van Nerven, Sarah Sentels, Alex Cothran and Fiona Foley. This episode was written by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer and our digital manager is Lachlan Hodson. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to check out our Changemakers Organising School if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.